Hello everyone, indeed, welcome to part two of Metanorn's look back at Katanagatari. If you're just joining us, this is a series of podcasts we're doing about the show from 2010, which is re airing this season on Noitamina. Today we'll be talking about episodes three and four. I'm your host, Min, and I'm joined again by Jero. Hello, listeners. And we have another special guest for you this week, Natasha. Hey there! Sorry, I kind of butchered your name. <laughs> no, <laughs> Natasha. it's fine. Don't worry about it.、Um, no, I'm, I'm Natasha. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I'm one of the anime bloggers who runs、uh, Shibiru Daro, or Isn't It Electrifying? I actually just recently watched Katana Gatari、so, uh, and turned into a big fan of the show, so I'm definitely excited for the fact that it's re airing. It's a pretty great opportunity to、uh, just take a look at the show and relive some of the moments that made it so amazing for me just recently. Well, yeah, thank you for、uh, joining us. It's,、uh, it's great to have you here. Your blog, the URL probably is not great for mentioning on the air, so I'll make sure to put、mm-hmm. a link to it on the,、uh, <laughs> on the show notes、yeah. <laughs> that, that everyone sees. But yeah, isn't it electrifying? It's,、uh, you know, you, you and、uh, a couple others write for it, right? Yeah,、uh, we, we started about a year ago.、Um, I think our anniversary is actually in a week, but.、Um, Uh, we started, I think, yeah, pretty much a year ago. And、uh, we, just, we just kind of started as three avid anime bloggers or anime fans who just wanted to get together and kind of talk about our feelings. And from there, it's kind of grown into something where we, we discuss current anime that's airing.、Uh, we sometimes do retro blogging, as I did、um, with Katana Gotari. I'm currently doing a retro blogging project on Deno Coil. We, we try to do at least three to four projects and we have fun doing it. So it's, it's been pretty great for the past year. And、uh, I definitely hope to be continuing it for the next how many years. <laughs> yeah, I've,、um, I mean, I've been checking out the blog for, I guess, maybe half a year.、Uh, haven't read everything, but definitely like <laughs> the posts on、um, Shinseka Yori. That those oh, were, yeah. Were good. And your retro blog of Katanagatari, I thought, were. Yeah. Thank really, you.、Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great reads, especially for you know, someone who watched it about a, a little over a year ago now. So, I guess, yeah, let's get right down to it. We're going to be talking about episodes three and four again. Also,、uh, Natasha, I just wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to comment on the new opening because、uh, you weren't here last week or last week. Oh,、time. yeah. Um, I, I didn't even、uh, know there was going to be a new opening until I think you mentioned it on Twitter. And、um, I did think it was interesting that、um, it's, it's more of a, mon- like a, like a series of scenes from throughout the show. I think I did mention this while talking to you, but it, there are some spoiler scenes.、Um, for the, f- the first part, is、um, they introduce every character that's, that's going to be shown in each episode. And I'd say that. For the previews, some of them you do know by the, by the end of the 
previous episode. But there are certain episodes where you're not, you don't know who the the character of the week is going to be. So, and in in those cases, it can be spoilery. So, I thought that was one part that intrigued me. Um, I think there are also some other spoiler parts which which I won't mention. But <laughs> um, I think based on that, I feel like the the re air is kind of aimed toward older fans rather than newer fans because. When I watched the opening, I definitely got a sense of nostalgia from it. I showed it to someone who was starting Katana Gotari for the first time, and while she thought it was pretty, she definitely thought the original one was a lot better. So I think it certainly appeals to people who have already seen the show. That said, if you're watching it for the first time, like there's nothing wrong with it. You won't notice the spoilers until you've actually finished the entire thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I did find it pretty funny that the sh- opening went through all 12 or kind of I don't know villains or of each episode one by one in (laughs) order which yeah I guess if you haven't seen it you wouldn't necessarily know but you might figure it out after a few episodes and uh, yeah that that in itself as you said provides spoilers but um but it's probably meant to just create appeal for new fans and those that probably didn't keep up with the show in the first run yeah and i think i think what's what's to be said is that if if you really wanted to watch the entire thing you could easily go out go buy the dvds so it's it's not like those Mm -hmm. those episodes aren't available to the public with that in mind i feel like it's it's particularly aimed at people who who have seen the show who kind of want to watch it again i mean as as someone who just finished the show and has rewatched some of the episodes, I can definitely say Katana Katari is a show that you can definitely rewatch a couple of times over again and notice new details, new things. Um, so it's it's something that you can watch over again, and I think it's because of that that it was chosen for the slot, and it's definitely chosen that kind of opening kind of reaffirms the idea that you can rewatch the show. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does appeal to new fans. I think everyone should be encouraged to watch the show because <laughs> it's really great. Um, I'd say that um, it's it's a slow burner. It's definitely something, mm-hmm. uh, the first two episodes, I think, had a bit of pacing issues. But once you get into it, you really get into it, and it, it grabs you. And by the time you are invested in everything, it's already over, so... Um, you kind of want to just go back and rewatch the entire thing again. So, yeah. All right. Um, so that's actually a great place to transition, I guess, to episode three, because you mentioned the pacing issues of the first two episodes. And I know to a lot of people, episode three was kind of a turning point for the show. Um, let me just quickly summarize what happens, which is that uh, Shichika and Togame go to the Sanzu Shrine, which is, um, well, first of all, it's on top of a really big mountain with a lot of steps, and it holds uh, the third sword, the Sento Tsurugi, which the main specialty of that is that there's a thousand of them, which kind of seems like a cheat, really. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so... This Sanzu Shrine is kind of special. It has, as its shrine maidens, women who are criminals or who, or who have the uh, 
leader, Meisai Tsuruga, mentions that the a lot of these women have uh, killed their families or in, their entire clans. Um, so they go there to ask for the sword from her. Of course, just like all the others, uh, Meisai says, no, I don't want to give it to you, but uh, designs a challenge where Togame has to identify the original sword and also Shichika has to defeat Meisai in a duel. And, you know, I guess, long story short, they end up defeating her and they get the sword. Uh, in the middle of it, she kind of tells Shichika her own backstory of how she became the leader of this shrine. And also a third ninja comes. Uh, his name is Kuizame Maniwa. And he, just like the previous one, gets defeated yeah. instantly <laughs> in one swipe before he even knows what's going on. Which, uh, it's a, you know, pretty cool scene, just like in the previous episode. But, um, yeah, so it ends up he's not a very... He doesn't really factor into the episode much at all. Yeah, these Maniwa so. characters kind of seem like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the, in the first episode, like he was the main villain, the uh, Komori, I think, Maniwa. Yeah, even then he seemed, he was just like going on and on talking and he wasn't very strong. And in the end, mm -hmm. he was kind of defeated because, well, of dumb luck, really, because yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't realize that Shichika has no skill with swords and that's how he died. And then you have the the uh, Maniwani ninja from episode two, who basically kind of speaks ba in backwards. Um, and I'd say he has like a two minute scene where he <laughs> he threatens the the Lord, the the guy, the main character, and um, he gets killed instantly. Um, so it, it seems to be a pretty pretty interesting friend. <laughs> Yeah, that's. Oh. Um, I thought that was a very fitting death for him because he gets sliced in half and his head ends up down where his feet are, which, uh, you know, him speaking backwards, that whole thing. But anyway, yeah, let's uh, talk about episode three then. Um, so uh, start with uh, Jero, actually. Uh, do you have any. What, do you th what did you think of the episode? This is the first episode of the series that I truly enjoyed. I thought things were interesting from one to two but as we talked about in the last podcast things had some problems there were some pacing issues the wordplay wasn't quite as clever but here this is I really liked this episode because it was the start it was a true start for me in in terms of Shichika's character and I actually was going to get ahead of myself, but I got to remember we're doing some live retro blogging, so I won't give away too many details. But but it seems like what he has an in interaction with Meisai Suruga is kind of what shapes him through the rest of the series. And I really like the the dialogue that those two had, and of course the the fight scene was at this moment the best in the series so far. And I thought overall that pre was one of my favorite episodes in the whole series. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, episode three overall, um, if, if I had to choose some of my favorite episodes from the series, uh, episode three would definitely be one of them. And um, I think as J-Ro has mentioned, um, one of the best parts about the, the episode is the look at 
Shichika's character. It's something we took for granted in episodes one and two because he he does he's pretty overpowered. He he can easily kill people with his with his uh, ability. I think in this episode, it was the first episode where we actually take a look at why he fights and he's questioned um, for why why he fights for Kagame. Why does he choose mm-hmm. to kill people? Why does he choose to follow Togame? Um, and what does it mean to actually protect someone? And I think my enjoyment personally stems from the fact that um, the the character of the episode, Suruga, is definitely a lot more complex than the um, characters we've we've seen in the previous two episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, her backstory was, well, at least to me, more emotionally compelling. But she's just. She's so much more complex, I'd say, because she she does have a tragic backstory, and she's definitely not portrayed as someone who is heroic and courageous all the time.、Um, but it, it's it's more about how she she takes what happened to her and she turns it around and turns it as a weapon of protection and tries to save people because of the mistakes she's made, which I thought was really interesting because.、Um, In episode one and episode two,、um, in episode one we meet the first Maniwani Corp, who is—I mean, he's funny. He's very egotistical. He wants to get the swords because he wants power, which which isn't something you know that's completely original.、Um, episode two, I feel like the the、uh, main opponent—he was interesting, but his backstory wasn't as deeply as explored as I would have liked it to be. But、um, in episode three, I'd say that a lot of the ep-、uh, episode focuses around、uh, Suruga and how she、um, she's trying to atone for her sins, but and how that kind of relates to、uh, Shichika and how what he what he thinks about fighting and the fighting style. Yeah,、um, so I'm gonna mirror a lot of the things, same things you both said here. This was the first episode that I really liked, and yeah. All the way till the end. This is probably one of my favorite episodes, and I think the key for me was, as you said, the Maysite Suruga, the main villain, sort of of this episode. That、um, the conversation she has with Shichika the night before their duel. That was,、um, I think, the first part of the show that really made it clear to me that this show is going to be like an episode. Each episode kind of explores a new character, a new. Area, a new place、mm-hmm. that we're going to be privy to for this just this one episode. This, and then we're going to move on、uh, to another one. But you know, during this episode, we're going to have this like full character, a full story that's not you know kind of self-contained.、Um, I guess it sort of made me think of adventure series like、uh, Kino's Journey, for instance.、Um, yeah, and yeah, I think this is. This episode was the first one where it really started to become clear to me that this might be what what the show's doing, and this episode did it really well.、Uh, as you said, with Tsuruga's character, her backstory of how she became a bandit, and she the way she became the head of this Sanzu Shrine is that she murdered the former head, and the former head、uh, was looking at her and saying, "You know, I'm sorry that I couldn't save you," and that. Sparked something in her. It leads her to go back and kill all of her comrades that become the head of this. Where, as you said, she protects these shrine maidens who 
have, I guess, similar stories to her, and that except that you know these are all women who have been abused or in some way, you know, left for dead or by by the people in their lives, and they have committed sins because of it. So you know, it's it's a case where none of the people really are all that you know clean, but there's a sense of I don't know forgiveness in there that they're trying to make what make right that Mesai is trying to do right for once in her life, I guess. Um, yeah. Even at the, even at the end during her duel with Shika, she says, you know, um, I don't think I'm gonna lose, but in case I do, could you you know guarantee the protection of these women? And I think that brings up a really good point um, because something I did notice in in episode three at least um, was the fact that whereas the previous two opponents um, kind of were poisoned by by their blades, um, the the first one was really greedy. He wanted to obtain, uh, he wanted to keep the blade and get the rest of the deviant blades because he wanted power. Um, the second one didn't really want to leave because he he uh, was tainted by this sense of pride and justice. It, it seems like Suraga, like, she wants to protect people. Like, she's using her, her blade for good. Like you said, she spreads out these thousand blades and gives them to these, these girls who have been victimized um, so that they can find a purpose in their life because they've been cast away. And like you said, while she's not clean herself, she's using her, like the blade for a good purpose. So it does bring up this complex kind of situation when Shichika is forced to kill her. Because it, I think Suraga was the first opponent I at least really came to emotionally connect with. Um, because she just, she was so passionate in her beliefs and she fought for them so hard. And you see it all kind of almost thrown away because she's she's easily defeated. And there there is a happy ending in in a way that you know the the girls the Mikos um, are protected. But there is a sense of loss. Like you actually feel something when she dies because she did she was doing what she was doing was it wasn't bad and it wasn't like it corrupted her. In fact, it was the opposite. She was trying to use it for good rather than evil purposes. I think that was really something interesting about her personally. Yeah, about the poison, I'm, I was actually wondering, at the end, Shichika identifies the original Sento Tsurugi. It's the one that she uses during their final uh, kind of showdown in the battle. And he can tell because it has this aura around it of being uh, Shikizaki Kiki's deviant blade. So I'm actually kind of wondering if the poison of the of the other 999 swords, is that was that real or was that just a an illusion? Were these shrine maidens really being protected or given a sense of peace by these blades, or was it just what they were led to believe by the mystique of the swords? I'm not sure if that was made clear. As I understand it, I think from what I remember is that she said that the poison was spread throughout the blades. But I okay. feel like the main blade is the one that contains the most poison. Okay. Um, I think that's that's how I came to see it. But um, yeah, I mean, when Shichika looked at the other blades, at least, I didn't see any auras or anything around them. But um, I mean, it's totally possible that they were just complete copies, but fakes. 
and didn't really contain any poison at all. Yeah, I, I guess I'm partly given this thought because of uh, last year's Nisemonogatari, where the in the first arc the big reveal is that oh this poison that we uh, that the guy poisoned your sister with wasn't anything. It was just I was telling her that she was poisoned and she became sick. <laughs> and that's, you know, another work by Nisio Isin, who tends to recycle ideas from work to another. So, yeah, just huh. uh, yeah, I also found uh, pretty cool the uh, martial art or the sword style that uh, Mesa used, uh, the Centorio, which we see a little bit of flashback of her using it in the past, where it's basically an unarmed style where you your first thing is you steal the opponent's sword and then you use it against them and then you throw it away and then you do it again against other opponents so it specifically mentions that the art is based around the concept that swords are disposable and we get to see that actually in their battle where she (laughs) starts off by throwing her sword at Shichika and he's (laughs) expecting like another attack right after that and she just runs away Right to like a cache of an, of other sorts. <laughs> yeah, I really love that. That was definitely something a little more creative. It was just fascinating to see how she had all of these swords like right, like at like right hidden in that mm-hmm. area, and she could easily just throw one away, use the next one, etc. I think that kind of fighting style, I think, is interesting because it's kind of a reflection of her past or her character because the way I saw it just as uh, she throws away blades um, and kind of uses new ones she kind of throws away her own uh, old facets of her personality Um, she wants to throw away her weakness of killing another the head priestess so she could become the head priestess like she throws away the other head priestess just to become the head priestess herself um, she tries to throw away the pain and the the sin of her past and try to reform her ways and to atone for what she's done um, and to make sure that other people, other girls don't become like her. So I thought that was really interesting because like you said, it's, it's kind of reflective of the idea that swords can easily be disposed of, but it also is kind of, for me, a reflection of how she became the person she is. and. Um, kind of a way of reflecting her personality in terms of fighting style. Yeah, I guess I didn't really think of it too deeply like that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I was just going to say that, have, if you've seen Soul Eater? Ah, yes, I have. I, I was kind of reminded of the uh, one of the swordsmen who he is kind of, um, he's a rival to uh, Black, or what's his name? Yeah, Black, Black Star. Black yeah, Star, Black yeah. Star, yeah. And uh, before he, any fight, he'll just toss a bunch of blades right into the battlefield, and he'll rely on them as his weapons to, uh, to use, throwing them yeah. away, and you know, grabbing at, at them as he needs. <laughs> very, very neat style to watch, like on a. And yeah, as we mentioned before, this episode definitely had the most exciting and involved action sequence of this mm-hmm. series so far. Which isn't to say it was like particularly long or, you know, great, but I thought it was, you know, as the culmination of that episode, it was a fine way to kind of uh, build up the climax and uh, 
a very, yeah, overall a very good action scene. And I think we talked about in episode two where the whole fight took place in one little room, whereas here, the way that Suruga fights with this style, it lends itself to the characters moving from area to area, which you see a little bit of in this episode. Yeah, and in the end, the way Shichika defeats her partly is by basically using the location by pulling her back towards the shrine where he knows that she doesn't have too many swords hidden. And I think it's it's worth noticing that I think this we talked we mentioned it before but the first two episodes had a bit of pacing issues. Um, there was a lot of talking but the way it flowed into the action scenes was a bit rough I'd say. Um, or it, it didn't give me the sense of satisfaction um whereas in this episode i feel like because the episode was really about um suruga and her her battle that the uh, the ultimate battle between her and shichika kind of gave you that satisfaction like oh it's leading it was leading up to this and while it was inevitable it's still really interesting to watch and I think that's something Katana Gatari definitely improves on with each episode. Um, I mean, with no spoilers, of course, but um, <laughs> every, I mean, after this episode, I was really intrigued by how they did the action scenes for the future episodes. Not just because of the swords or anything, but like just the way it was done and the way it kind of flowed in. Um, the execution was a lot more impressive. And as I mentioned before, a lot of people consider episode 3 to be a turning point. And I would too, except for the next episode, <laughs> episode 4, which uh, I, I rewatched recently, uh, but, and I enjoyed it a hell of a lot more this time. But <laughs> when I was watching it, after you know the excitement of episode 3, episode 4, I was like, yeah, okay, and that's... Um, I see what the, I see what you did there, but I don't yeah. think it's all that great. So, yeah, um, yeah if you don't mind, let's uh, move on to the next episode, which um, I think it yep. lends itself to the idea that if you, you have to watch the actual episode preview for episode four. <laughs> yes, that was okay. So, so I'll just mention episode four. The preview for that is that Shichika is going to fight. This guy named Hakuhei Sabi, who was shown in certain scenes in previous episodes. Um, he is supposed to be Japan's strongest swordsman, and we've seen him take down enemies, you know, really easily. Uh, he holds the fourth uh, deviant blade, Hakuto Hari, which is an extremely thin, brittle blade that is very difficult to wield without breaking it. So you need somebody who's very skilled like him. And actually, in shots of it, you can see that it's translucent. So mm. it's, uh, I think the idea is it's made of glass or something like it. But it has the ability to cut through anything. Uh, you know, the rumor goes that he, using the Hakutohari, can cut even the sun in half. And he also has the trademark line, I'll have you fall for me, which uh, <laughs> I think yeah. was shown earlier when uh, Shichika and Togame were trying to figure out their best uh, 
uh, tagline. Oh, yeah. sorry, I forgot to mention that in episode three. In both in episode two at the end, we saw Shichika use his tagline uh, for the first time. Uh, by that point, you'll be torn to pieces. And then uh, in episode three again, right before his final clash with uh, Tsuruga, he uses that same line again. <laughs> says, yes, but by that point, you'll be torn to pieces. And, you know, that's you know, probably not no surprise. That's a line that keeps coming up again because that's what it's supposed to do. And I think, you know, it's early on, it's you know kind of cool to hear it. But then over time, it starts gaining meaning and... By the end, it's like such a badass line. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really like. Like what? You never what get old of it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Sorry, back to episode four. So, the preview for episode four at the end of episode three showed exclusively battle clips of Shichika versus Sabi, where they're going. They go to Ganryu Island and they're fighting there. And some parts of it, even they end up fighting on the water or on the ground. <laughs> on the sea bed where after Saki, uh, Sabi has basically cut the split the water just like Moses except he did it with his sword and then you see him split like a um, boat and uh, a fish and just these amazing battle sequences that are just way beyond anything we've seen in the show so far and then episode 4 itself happens and in the first 10 or so minutes you're thinking okay Togame and Shichika are kind of hanging out, they're talking about, oh, we have this amazing swordsman we got to defeat, it's going to be so hard. And then it cuts to back to Shichika's home, where it stays there for the, pretty much the rest of the episode, with um, Shichika's sister, Nanami, having to deal with three new Maniwa ninja. The thing with this episode is that we'd see none of the fight, none of the preview of the, from the previous episode was in the episode itself, except at the end when Togame and Shichika are kind of sitting down and saying, "Woof, that was sure a tough fight, huh?" <laughs> yeah, like when you when you performed that move against him, I had no idea you were gonna do that, and if that didn't happen, I would have been dead. And they just go on and on for like five minutes about this fight that. We didn't have any chance of seeing, and that that really like okay, that's just annoying. I I was very very annoyed and pissed off after. Let, let me let me tell you something. When I watched the show, as soon as the end credits started rolling, I would quit and move on to the next episode. So everything you just said right now is blowing my mind. <gasps> oh man. <laughs> What do you mean? I didn't even know. I didn't even watch any previews. I didn't even know there was that uh, much in the previews. So I actually have to go watch it as soon as we're done here. Yeah, but, you missed what is still after you know all twelve episodes. That that bit of wow. action was the most amazing action in the entire series. I think. I mean, it doesn't didn't have the emotional impact of the later mm -hmm. uh, episodes at all. But in terms of pure animation, choreography, and such. That oh, was yeah. really great stuff, which again, we didn't see any of in this episode. <laughs> we didn't see any of it. it, it, it but, like, yeah. the one word you could sum up is that it was epic. Like, you were like, this is the battle I've been waiting for. Like, if Katana Gatari had some really good action scenes, I bet this is going to top every one of them. And you don't see it. And it's funny because you're like, well, I thought they were going to show us 
Japan's strongest swordsman, and they do. It's just <laughs> it's not him. <laughs> it's someone else. Right. So right. So actually, you know, I, I mentioned when I watched it again, I liked it a lot better, and that's because of this other half of the episode, which, as you alluded to, does feature Japan's strongest swordsman, or maybe more accurately, swordswoman. Uh, Shichika's sister. We learn a bit more about her because Maniwa Ninja uh, from the Maniwa Insect Squad come to try to capture her so that they can use her as leverage, uh, as hostage to uh, make Shichika easier to defeat. But turns out, you know, they're in for a, they bit off a little bit more than they can chew because she quickly disposes of all of them one by one. Let's, um, I'll roll back here a bit. Uh, so the Maniwa Insect Squad consists of three characters, uh, Kamakiri, Chocho, and Mitsubachi. So Kamakiri, uh, so each one has an insect motif. Kamakiri is based on the mantis, the praying mantis. He's the leader, and he's the his ability is to extend his nails, which, uh, you know, I guess it matches the whole um, praying mantis motif. And he gets killed very quickly, but first when he tries to attack Nanami and he gets tied up uh, by her and she tries to torture him for more info, he doesn't uh, really respond. He tries to attack her and she responds by killing him, which lets the other two know that uh, he's been killed. And the second one, second uh, Maniwa Ninja is Chocho, who is a very small guy. He is uh, seems to be older than the others, but I'm not sure if he's older than Kamakiri. His motif is the butterfly, and his power is that he can make himself virtually weightless. And that allows him and the other two to actually get to the island without any boat. He mm -hmm. just floats on the water and he, while he's holding up the other two guys. And it's also revealed that he is uh, betrothed, I believe, to another ninja. Oshidori of the Bird Squad, who is, uh, so uh, it seems that the Bird Squad, their motif is, are birds, and Oshidori is a duck. Yeah, I thought it was funny, actually. The episode spends a lot of time on these characters. Uh, they really kind of interact a lot with one another, talk about their past, their future, their hopes and dreams in some ways. And I thought it was really funny when um, Chocho's talking to Mitsubachi, the third ninja and before he goes off to fight Nanami he's talking about his fiance and then he mentions uh, uh oh by the way I'm quitting smoking for her and uh, Mitsubachi stops him saying like oh you shouldn't you should stop talking about that <laughs> and he's like what what are you talking about but uh, Mitsubachi doesn't go on but I was thinking okay he's saying stop triggering those death flags because yeah. before you go into a fight you do not talk about an a lover back at home. You do not talk about quitting smoking. You don't talk about any of that because that means you're definitely going to die. Um, and oh, sorry, I, I, uh, the last one, Mitsubachi is the youngest one. He's based on a bee and he has these uh, poison hooked balls. I forget what the, they were called in the actual show. But yeah, that's his ability, I guess, which isn't really much of a ninja ability but <laughs> oh i mean i guess it is but it's not really a magical ability in any way so i thought this was you know another case you know watching again without being very angry that i'm not watching this mo awesome fight between shichika and this badass swordsman i could kind of see that hey this is also 
building on the idea from the previous episode that each episode is going to be like a story about these villainous or you know not not our main characters who mm. have their own stories have their own relationships and we're going to learn a bit about them and so i thought it was pretty cool that we got to see these characters bounce off each other uh yeah, before they die two minutes later <laughs> right this is these are the most interesting ninja yet i guess I, I do like um, how before we, we, we see these ninjas and they instantly get killed off. So we don't really have any sympathy for them. We're just like, oh, they, they happened. They got killed. Okay. But um, in, in this episode, I'd say a good portion of the episode is focused on their interaction or how they, they really see each other as comrades and as friends. And um, I think one of the really interesting aspects of this episode is we we think we're supposed to side for Nanami and we're supposed to root for her as she is Shichika's sister but I personally when you know uh watching this episode was horrified by by her sinister nature and I found myself actually rooting for for the ninjas um I mean yeah they were sent to the island to kill her but I mean the way they were tortured and they're they're last words like um uh, the third ninja and his loyalty and the fact that he he asks right when he dies that he should be buried uh next to his comrades is just it's heartbreaking and i mean you, you didn't really care about these ninjas um or what they were up to who they really were um until now and it's just it's so tragic to see how how they get killed and when they when they had so many dreams and hopes and they they were thinking about their future and you know like like you were talking about his fiance how he was going to quit smoking and those those dreams are crushed yeah um and i, I guess it's f funny you say that you were actually rooting for the ninja i mean i can definitely see that because if you take away that whole context that these guys are here to kidnap her and they're they are against our heroes they are bad guys to our heroes yeah the way the whole ep that part of the episode builds up is that yeah these guys are the sympathetic people nanami is this well mysterious figure at first but then as she kind of talks about herself you realize she's a monster mm -hmm. she is has the this amazing ability that it's of she sees a technique once, she learns it, she sees it twice, she masters it. And, I mean, that in itself isn't monstrous or anything. It's, you know, pretty cool. Um, I want to mention that Medaka in Medaka Box herself, yeah. another Nisioisian uh, work, so. by the way, has similar abilities, and she's a heroine, she's a good person. But Nanami, yeah, she, she seems... I, I kind of want to say sociopathic, the way she responds to these characters, um, the way she talks mm -hmm. to the one uh, Kamakiri after she has him tied down. She's saying, explaining very calmly that she's going to torture him for information uh, and explaining how there's nothing he can do to get out of it. You know, she doesn't really, it feels as if she has no concept of the, you know, emotion or empathy at this point. She She's just telling him exactly what's going to happen with no emotion, no feelings. And in the end, she kills him with no, you know, no hesitation. Mm -mm. 
And, you know, in, in the end, she kind of does for everyone else, for the other two ninja. But then again, at the end, you see that she actually does honor Mitsubachi's request. So there's a, there's a feeling of conflict of, uh, like, I mean, I guess to begin with, Nanami herself is, the character design is, looks very small, weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mentioned that she was sick all the time growing up. But turns out the reason she was sick is because she should have died, but she somehow she couldn't die. So, you know, <laughs> that in itself becomes a strength somehow. So, yeah, this episode seems to be all about flipping things around and kind of, I don't know, subverting expectations. <laughs> and I think one thing I really, like, it, it, it's in the very beginning of the episode. You, you see her as this fragile, innocent girl. Um, and in the first episode, she she's seen as like this mature, caring sister who who's weak, who can't do anything. She needs her older brother to get the food and supplies for her. Her younger uh, brother. Her younger brother, sorry. And and we're just like, oh, I guess she's she's not going to really show up again or take you know like an episode for herself. But here she just, I mean. The past three episodes were really intense, but I feel like episode four was probably the most terrifying episode out of all of them. And a lot of that is because of Nanami and just the way she 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 just lacks any empathy. The way she tortures these people to get information. The, the way that she lacks sympathy or empathy for, for these characters. I mean, I do think it's interesting that you could also say that Chichika lacks empathy when he kills. Like in episode three, he he kills Suruga, and Togame has this very kind of sad, forlorn look on her face. And he even asks her, he's like, "Oh, you know, I killed her. You know, we won." And she's like, "Yeah, but you you didn't really need to kill her." And he doesn't really show sympathy or anything. But I think what makes Nanami more terrifying is that while Shichika is kind of developing. I don't think he's the kind of character who would go as far as to torture people. Whereas Nanami almost kind of takes a sort of perverse delight in doing it. Whereas Shichika would probably do it with no expression. Um, We saw that Nanami had this kind of horrific smile on her face when she was asking for information and tearing the praying mantis ninja's like nails off, which was just unimaginable for me. I mean, we've seen people get killed, but torture was definitely something I was not expecting. So this definitely had a more of an impact on me than I expected it to. And even showing the backstory with her of the moment that her father says that he's going to teach Shichika the the way of the Kyotoru, you still feel like, wow, she is really... uh, just monstrous and insane and probably maybe it was for the better just to teach Shichika. My initial impression on the episode, I mean obviously we talked about how I didn't realize that preview actually happened with the big (laughs) fight but at first I kind of felt like it was just dragging like the message was sent that Nanami is the better of the two uh, between her and Shichika, that she was the stronger one of the two, and 
the the torture stuff was it was interesting but it kept going and going and Shichika and Togami just basically took a back seat for you know nine tenths of the episode it seemed um but as we learn later it's it's important yeah and um I definitely agree with you that the uh first couple of scenes I felt were just showcasing how powerful she was um and I did get the message I think um a little later on though as they showed her backstory I found her to be I wouldn't say sympathetic I I definitely don't feel sorry for Nanami in episode four um but you definitely get the message that she's more complex than just a monster I mean like like you said she actually fulfills the last ninja's wish and buries him next to his comrades and there there was just this sense when i was watching her throughout the episode that she doesn't feel bad about what she does but i feel like what she did was innate like she couldn't help but do what she was doing she, the fact that she she is so strong that her body cannot take that power like she she can't help but be able to see these techniques these abilities and i think there's even one point in the episode where she she questions the idea of effort she's like you know to me you guys practice so hard and long at mastering this ability and i'm almost envious because i never i don't have that kind of time i i just master it within a couple of seconds and i i honestly don't understand the concept of effort or hard work must be um, nice. <laughs> and yeah, it, it just kind of shows her as as a as a I would say someone who is in constantly in limbo. She can't die. Um, but she's so weak that technically she could die. Like her body is in a horrible condition. She is more powerful than Shichika, but she's not the person who the ability is handed down to. Um, she can master every ability, but she can't actually fight for such a long while because she's so weak. Um, in terms of the physical body. She can't understand people because she's so strong. So she's kind of in this this constant sense of limbo. And I don't think I was able to understand that until like a good 30 to 50 minutes in where they, instead of just showing torture scenes, she gets a little bit of dialogue and you see her perspective on her ability and how she views the idea of hard work or, you know, how fleeting the idea of, achievement is for her that it doesn't exist because she instantly masters everything um so i thought that was a bit tragic and but interesting it was definitely interesting i I think tragic is a great word to use here because when she was explaining her ability uh in the middle of the episode it she there was this sense of i don't know fatalism that like she felt like everything was basically predetermined determined in a way that of course she was going to win of course she was going to learn it there's no effort needed every everything comes naturally to her but because that's how she grew up that's because that's who she is yeah she can't really help that she isn't like others that she isn't doesn't have that empathy she doesn't she isn't able to see things the way others do and yeah that to us definitely it's sociopathic the way she behaves but at the same time you know yes it's sociopathic but it's not really something 
that we can blame her? I mean, can yeah. we? It's like, yeah, that's the question, I think. It Or that r raises that complexity that she is destined to be this monster. And I think, I think what you, like, like you say, a lot of our empathetic, sympathetic feelings come from a sense that we work hard for something and we feel that sense of achievement that we, we got where we want it to be and that grants us happiness. But for, for Nanami, who, who doesn't have to go through that process, from her point of view, I feel like things are just the way they are. Like, que sera, sera. Like, you know, what is, is. You know, people die, people live. Like, it's just a matter of fact for her. I think um, in this episode, she, she even tries to reach out. She's like, I am sure that you people who work so hard would never understand someone like me. Who, does, who doesn't even understand the idea of what it means to make an effort. And I think the way she says that line, it makes you realize that she's doing horrible things, but it's not because she doesn't want to. I mean, it's just that it's, it's innate. It's just something she was kind of born with. I think it's also worth noting that both her and Shijika were raised without really, I would say, proper parenting. Like, both of them... <laughs> were raised to be killers. I mean, like, Shichika was raised to be a sword. And as you saw in the first episode, he has no qualms about killing people. Um, he's extremely blunt. But whereas he's blunt about his killing, Nanami calculates everything. And I think that's what makes her more sinister, is the fact that she can predict what people do. Whereas Shichika just kind of adapts to the situation. I think that's a great way of summing it up. Yeah, and at the end of the episode, at I think, you know, this episode served a lot of purposes, One, uh, but mainly it was sort of a coming out for Nanami, letting us know who she really is. And also because she saw Chocho, whose ability we mentioned before is to make himself weightless, she can now do it herself, which means, hey, now she can escape from the <laughs> island because she can fly. <laughs> so, and that's, uh, you know, that's going to come back in a big way. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. And... <laughs> I mean, I won't lie when I say that Nami is probably my my most favorite secondary character in in Katana Gatari. Um, I am endlessly fascinated with her, um, and I mean, just the way she's presented not in, in just in this episode and future episodes, the way she's handled, I feel is is really effective. And um, yeah, I I love her. Um, and I mean, while episode four is not one of my most favorite episodes. It's definitely one that is memorable just because of Nanami and how she's presented. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'll see a little more of her and you you will always be <laughs> in shock that I won't say any more than that. <laughs> yeah, this episode's definitely, um, as you said, you can't forget it, whether it be for the epic troll or for Nanami. I also want to mention that... Uh, you know, at the end, uh, Shichika and Togame were, uh, they were eating and just talking about the fight. And uh, <laughs> Shichika mentions that um, Sabi, before he died, kind of said, uh, Kotoryu was abandoned by Shikizaki Kiki. Which, um, you know, that, you know, what does that mean? That doesn't really seem to make much sense at this point, right? That uh, Shikizaki yeah. Kiki is uh, not, you know. Um, I think I think what's interesting is, you, you don't really remember those lines. Um, and 
at this point, you're just like, oh, Shikijaki Kiki is that guy who made the swords, like, but that's it. And I think for the first four episodes, Katana Gatari doesn't really have this tie back to a main plot or anything. It, it feels very episodic in nature. But episode four is the first sense where you start to feel, oh, there's, there's something coming together. Uh, this show is definitely not as episodic or happy with, with the sense of Nanami being so terrifying and easily torturing three ninjas with, with no problem. I feel like it was a shift. It was like this kind of feeling that something much more sinister, much more interesting is actually going on. And it's a good shift. Um, it's like you, like you said, it's a bit of trolling. But um, I think at a good expense, where, you, where you're starting to get excited and you're like, oh, something, something bigger is going on here. Um, and it definitely does get bigger. <laughs> well, Jero, do you have any other thoughts? I guess I'm... Uh, when our caption title for the first post was, it gets better, I swear. And <laughs> I think we can agree that it got better. And we talked a lot about the characters and how much better they are in these two episodes versus the previous two episodes in that we had Suruga Meisai, who is much more complex, and we had the Maniwani Corps, who I had mentioned in episode 3 seemed like a joke, and they generally are a joke so far in proving how weak they are compared to everybody they've been up against, but you actually got to see them converse with each other. You lose three of them in one episode, but as Natasha was mentioning, I kind of felt the same way and kind of rooting for them, not necessarily to beat Nanami, but you guys should probably get the hell out or you're going to die. <laughs> and uh, just overall, the these two episodes were real good. Yeah, I definitely agree that it got better and... You know, I I still think that episode four is not a great one for people who are watching for the first time, which I think generally shows should be designed for. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, on a second viewing, I definitely warmed up to it. Episode three is just great. And, you know, I still think the show gets better from this point. But really, yeah, these two episodes are um, good stuff. I think it's the... Katanagatari is really, at this point, starting to get into its own rhythm. I mean, um, the pace, like I said, pacing issues for the first two episodes, but the the next, from here on out, I would say that the pacing for Katanagatari only gets better, um, to the point where you can watch a 50-minute episode and not know that it just goes by that fast, and you feel like you just watched something that was really 30 minutes or something which has happened with me uh, for some of the later episodes where I just be like wait really that was that was only 50 minutes whereas in the first two episodes there were mo- moments I'd say t- or little little points in time where I just I would feel like things were dragging on so um, but the writing gets better the action gets better the characters get better execution gets better I, I would say everything really just it, it improves from here on out so I mean if, if you've stuck for if you've stuck with the show for three episodes or, or three or four episodes you'll definitely be rewarded for the next eight I can promise you that 
All right, yeah, we got a, another ringing endorsement to add on to myself and Jero. <laughs> this is a, yeah, a show you should check out if you haven't already. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, I think we're about done here. Uh, thank uh, you for having me. It was a pleasure, pleasure talking about this, and uh, I do hope that more people watch this underrated show. In my opinion, um, it might not hook you at first, but if you stick with it a little bit longer. It it definitely does get better, so maybe Flawfinder from the last podcast will come around. <laughs> maybe he's just a lost cause. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you again very much for uh, coming on, Natasha. Uh, again, you can find her on Isn't It Electrifying? Uh, I'll have the link up on the post. Uh, she's also on Twitter as. Illegenes, which is spelled I-L-L-E-G-E-N-E-S. Yeah, and for Jero, this is Min, and thank you for listening. Bye. See ya.